it seems natural, at least to me, that we should study Second Peter, having just finished studying First Peter. In fact, many people see Second Peter as more closely related to the Epistle to Jude than they do to First Peter. But like the Epistle of Jude, it has been much neglected. As one commentator put it, Second Peter and Jude have been called the dark corner of the New Testament. The designation is not wholly unwarranted. Whatever the causes, the ignorance within Christendom concerning these epistles is lamentably widespread. He goes on to note that there are at least two reasons for this neglect or this ignorance. The first is that people sort of assume that the issues Peter was dealing with in Second Peter and that Jude was in his epistle, um, these are obsolete issues, and they're no longer vital for the life of the church and for contemporary concerns. We really, this is old stuff, and, and we don't need to do this anymore. The second reason is that people aren't sure who wrote these letters. I think both of these reasons point to those who are in leadership in the church, those who know such things as textual criticism and church history and, and the like. Um, the fact is, many people, many scholars, do not believe that Peter wrote Second Peter. And therefore, they sort of ignore it and deny that it has any authority in the church whatsoever. I won't burden you with the various reasons people give for denying Peter's authorship. Um, they say that it was actually written a hundred years after Peter's death. Let me just say parenthetically, it's just my opinion but I think it's important to understand that no one comes to a text, any text, but particularly scripture, without some preconceived ideas. And these ideas shape and direct our approach as we come to the text. And I recognize that that may sound uh, or seem simplistic, but the notion of the purely objective reader, I think, is a myth. So those who claim to be objective and to have a clearer vision that somehow they are not bothered by matters of faith or devotion um, fail to recognize that, in fact, their vision is clouded by other things. When we read in Second Peter, in the first verse, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, and then in verses 16, 17, 18, a description of himself as an eyewitness to the Mount of Transfiguration, in chapter 3, uh, he puts his writing on the same level, that of Paul, 3.15. Chapter 1, verse 14, he recalls the Lord's prediction about his death, which is found in the Gospel of John. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, the author says, This is now my second letter to you. All this would seem to indicate to me that Peter wrote this letter. But those who say he did not write this letter argue that this was done by an over-eager forger, if you wish, in the second century, trying to pass himself off as Peter, that he's trying too hard to be Peter, they would say, to which I would respond, you're, tr you're trying too hard for it not to be Peter. I mean, it seems fairly simple. It's, it's right there. And yet you seem to reject that notion. So when the book begins, Simon Peter and a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, I take it at face value. Some background that will help us and guide us in our study. Although I hesitate to bring this up, I, th I think I should. And that is, we do find that the style and the vocabulary in Second Peter is different than what we find in First Peter. It's not as apparent in English translations as it is in Greek, which is what Peter wrote it in. 
These differences have led some to say Peter didn't write it because he uses a different vocabulary in the two letters. Um, you may remember, we saw this last week, that at the end of First Peter, uh, Peter mentions, with the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Could it not be that the differences between First and Second Peter have to do with Silas's input? We need to remember something very important. When we speak of the inspiration of Scripture, the writings were inspired, not the writers. Now, I realize that this may open the door to someone to say, well, then it could have been someone other than Peter who wrote this, if the writer doesn't matter. I think it does matter, but Peter did, in fact, write this. The author identifies himself as Simon Peter. The date of this letter. Well, we're not told where Peter was when he wrote this, unlike the first one. We're not told when he wrote it. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, it would seem to indicate that it was done shortly after the first letter. Um, as to where Peter was, I would argue in some ways it is unimportant. Unlike the first letter, it is very important that as he speaks of unjust suffering, that he writes from the place that epitomizes unjust suffering, where Jesus was crucified, that is Jerusalem. But now in the second letter, he's going to write about false teachers that are found throughout the church everywhere. And so where he writes from is not that important. Peter was martyred somewhere between 65 and 68 A.D. during the reign of Nero. The book was written sometime before then because it was written by Peter. Who is he writing to? We will look at this later. Um, but I would just say at this point. Um, as the letter is connected to the first, we can assume that the audience is the same as the first. He doesn't mention them. He doesn't have to because he did in the first letter. The purpose of the letter. There are at least three purposes as I see it as we go through this letter. The first is to expose false teachers for what they are. The second is to set before the church the conditions of survival. The third I will give to you at another time. In doing this, Peter seems to focus on two realities. First of all, who God is, and then knowledge and God. If you go through Second Peter, certain things become quite apparent. Peter sees God as a God who is holy, who intends his creation to be a reflection of his holiness, and who calls his people to be the living manifestation of his holy character. Secondly, God is triune. God is trinity. Thirdly, God is eternal and omnipresent. And he is in no way frustrated. His purposes are not frustrated by human resistance, not even false teachers. Thirdly, God is the supreme judge. Actually, this is fourth. It is his intention to punish evil. And yet we find him to be a God of compassion. God is sovereignly powerful. He is moving human history and the history of salvation toward a particular point. History isn't just sort of going down with the flow of things. It is God who is moving human history. And lastly, God is personal. He has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ, and in scripture. Therefore, God can be known. 
which leads to the second reality that Peter touches on again and again in this letter, and that is knowledge and God. The emphasis on knowing the Lord and knowing the truth is characteristic of this letter. We will see this as we go along. There are two sides to knowing. The first is there is the knowledge of God and of his son, Jesus Christ. The word in Greek is not the normal word we would expect to find, gnosis, but it is in fact epigenosis. Then there is the knowledge of truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Here is the more familiar word. We will see both of these in a minute. One could argue that the difference between the two is this. The knowledge of God is something that is given to us. And the knowledge of the truth is something that we gain. Therefore, the Lord willing, next Sunday when we see that we are to add to our knowledge, then knowledge is something that we can gain. We are to add to it. This is an important key to understand how Peter presents the Christian faith. There is one difference worth mentioning between 1st and 2nd Peter. 1st Peter is written to a church that is facing persecution, and therefore it emphasizes courage and hope, standing fast. 2nd Peter is written to churches facing false teaching, and therefore it emphasizes true knowledge and stability. In 1st Peter, he writes about the resurrection, that it is a guarantee of the inheritance that we have reserved in heaven. In 2 Peter, he talks about what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. And as it sort of bridges the gap between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, Peter was there. In both, we see that the return of Jesus is proclaimed as a motive for living the way that we should, as well as the reality of a final judgment and condemnation. They both mention the return of Jesus, but in 1 Peter, the return is meant to encourage the readers, those who are going through suffering, that there will be ultimate vindication. In 2 Peter, yes, it does seem that the second coming has been delayed. It's, it's not happened as soon as we thought it would. But in fact, there are consequences for those who are false teachers. What are the connections between these two letters? At least two things come to mind. One of the last imperatives in 1 Peter 5 is stand fast in it. That is the grace, the true grace of God. Second Peter is written to help them do precisely that, to stand fast in the true grace of God. That, I think, is a very natural connection. The second is something that I'm reminded of, something that Francis Schaeffer used to say. He did his best, by God's grace, to stand against false teaching and error. He went over to Europe, as he saw it, being overwhelmed by liberalism. And he made the comment that whenever you think of false doctrine or false teaching, you should picture in your mind a fire-breathing dragon that wants to destroy you, that wants to devour you. He said, but you need to be careful because as you back away from that fire-breathing dragon... If you turn around, there is another one right behind you. That so often in backing away from certain dangers and certain errors, if we're not careful, we will fall into other errors. So in 1 Peter, he talks about the church being together and standing against persecution. 
and deals at length with the church as the body and how we are to serve one another. It sort of becomes us versus them. But if we're not careful, we will fall into the danger that Peter talks about in Second Peter, and that is the problem isn't always out there. Oftentimes the problem is inside the church. If we have false teachers outside the church, it's not a problem. They're outside the church. Where they do the most damage is when they are inside the church. And so we need to be aware that we can't simply focus on one thing. Uh, that there is the problem within the church as well. I think the last thing I would say is that this is a pastoral letter. Peter is a true pastor as well as someone who puts forward a skilled argument. He warns the faithful, but he doesn't do so to the point where we lose confidence in the reality that God is in control. It might seem that God is sleeping while false teachers, wolves, come in and destroy the flock. In chapter 2, Peter will make it clear that God knows precisely what is going on and the condemnation of these false teachers is certain. One commentator begins his commentary this way. Fakes are a nuisance. Fake artists make fools of collectors. Fake financiers embezzle millions at the expense of honest investors. Fake scientists inflate their own reputations by writing on the back of other people's hard research. In other areas of life, fakes are not merely a nuisance, but actually pose a serious threat. Living when and where we do, tolerance seems to be the, the rule to live by. And if one speaks of someone being a fake or not genuine, then that seems very intolerant. Unless you begin to recognize the, the damage and the danger that fakes and imposters and pretenders pose. Say, for example, that you have a serious health condition and you need to take medication on a regular basis to manage your condition. If someone gives you, if you go to the pharmacy and they give you the prescription and it is not genuine, it is fake, you will not be able to tolerate it. In the language of today, we would say you are intolerant. But yes, of course you are, because you're not being given what you should be given. This is why Peter writes this second letter. I'm convinced it has much to teach us. I hope by God's grace that is the case. So let's begin by looking at the first two verses of Second Peter. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. I would remind you as we begin that the openings of these letters and the closings are not merely fluff. They have much to teach us. And so we're not just going to skip over them. This is the place we must begin. You will remember from our other studies that in the ancient world, letters began with the name of the person writing the letter, then secondly, the persons who are being addressed, and then a greeting of some sort. And traditionally, there is a fourth part that is uh, thanksgiving to the gods for the health or the well-being of the person receiving the letter. We do not find this fourth thing here in Peter's second letter. He opens his letter with the genuine in contrast to that which is not genuine, that which is fake. 
the genuine apostle, the genuine Christian, and the genuine experience. First of all, the author, the genuine apostle. The writer identifies himself as Simon Peter. Uh, This is the only New Testament letter that begins with a double name. If you look at all the other other epistles, uh, it's written by Paul, or by Jude, or by John, James. But here we have Simon Peter. It also contains a double position, which is common in the epistles, servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Let's begin with the the Simon. This is his personal name, the name he had when Jesus called him to be his disciple. Peter, on the other hand, is his nickname, the name that Jesus gave him. Some manuscripts in the place of Simon have Simeon, which is the more Jewish form of the name, which we find, by the way, in Acts chapter 15. Both point to the man drawing up memories of sort of a rash, individualistic, rough, I-know-it-all type of individual prior to, and one would say even after, his encounter with Jesus Christ. He is someone Jesus called to be a fisher of men, someone Jesus tasked with gave the task to feed my sheep. The name Peter recalls that Jesus gave him the name, pointing to him as a leader among the disciples. He is Simon Peter. He is a servant. The word in Greek um, is not unexpected. We, We see this, I think, in almost all the other epistles. But not in 1 Peter, interestingly enough. I'm not sure why that is, but it's not there in 1 Peter. It points to his identity and his status as being bound up as one who is committed to the person of Jesus Christ. And then he is an apostle. He is a servant and he is an apostle. Again, not unexpected. The word in Greek means a messenger commissioned to give a message by a particular person. And we find it used at least two different ways in the New Testament. One is in a very general sense. And so we find people like Silas, Barnabas, Titus, Timothy, referred to as apostles. They are sent by someone to deliver a particular message. But in a specific way, it is used of the twelve that Jesus called to be his disciples. Their position in the church is unique, as we find throughout the New Testament. The one passage that always comes to mind for me is Ephesians chapter 2. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Thus, one might say it's a rather prestigious position. And the temptation is to say that Peter sort of balances this thing out, that, that servants points to humility and apostle points to his authority. I think they actually both point to his authority. Consider what we find in the Old Testament when we read about someone being a servant of God. To be a servant of the Lord was a position of great honor. We see this in Isaiah in particular. Isaiah 41, But you, O Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from the farthest corners I called you. I said, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not rejected you. And then in Isaiah 49, he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. We also find that those in positions of authority and leadership in the Old Testament are referred to as God's servants. They are to do what he commanded. Even pagan kings like Nebuchadnezzar 
are referred to as God's servant. Jeremiah 43. Then say to them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, I will send for my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. This shouldn't shock us because if you read Romans 13, Paul refers to those in positions of political authority as ministers of God. So it, we might be humbled by the notion of being a servant or a slave. That's not what we find in the Old Testament. By the way, just to finish that thread of thought, in the Old Testament, God's servants oftentimes failed to do what they were supposed to do. And so the prophets, particularly Isaiah, began to speak of someone who would come in the future and make things right. And he would be God's perfect servant. And that was Jesus Christ. So, servant and apostle. But let's make sure we don't miss the point. He is a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Yes, he is a servant and an apostle. But of whom is he a servant and an apostle? In what follows in chapter 1, Peter gives the reader a real sense of who Jesus Christ is. We will look at this as we come to it. But I would have you recognize that being a servant and an apostle, as important as that is, is secondary to the one who owns you and the one who has commissioned you. And if Peter were here today, that is what he would tell us. Don't focus on him as servant and an apostle, but focus on the fact that he belongs to Jesus Christ. The second one, who is he addressing? Who is the audience? To those who through the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ have received a faith as precious as ours. This is rather general, one could say sort of generic. It's unlike what we find in 1 Peter 1.1. To God's elect strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Fairly specific. But if indeed, as is stated in chapter 3, verse 1, that this is his second letter to him, he doesn't, have, he doesn't have to mention who they are. By the way, let me just read to you. I've mentioned it several times. Chapter 3, verse 1. Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. This letter is still to the Christians who are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. There are three aspects to their identity as Peter addresses them. First of all, they are those who have received a faith. How does one become a Christian? One might say, well, by believing. One might say, because I have believed. Another would respond, it's God's doing. It is God's election. According to Peter, both would be right. On the one hand, we believe. It is the fundamental definition of a Christian. We are believers. We are those who believe. We have faith. On the other hand, Peter knows it is not our feeble faith that holds us close to God. It is God who does the holding. This is the reality behind the word received. Those who have received a faith. By the way, the word that Peter uses here is a very political term. And it's, it's sort of interesting that he chose to use it. It was used of the appointment of government officials. If if. Caesar or somebody else said, I appoint you to be this position. You, had, you would have received an appointment. And Peter says, you have received a faith. 
if we survive a lifetime of trouble, it's not evidence of our own hardiness or toughness or resilience. It is the work of God who has given us a faith. There is a question as to what Peter means by faith. Does he mean the act of believing? Or does he mean what it is that we have believed? I actually don't see the need to make a distinction between the two. They are both tied together. What I believe and the fact that I believe should be inseparable. Unlike, for example, I've mentioned before, Norman Vincent Peale. It was his custom. He said every morning he would sit up in bed and he would say, I believe, I believe, I believe and then start his day. The burning question is, what do you believe? What do you believe? And so to separate belief from what we believe, I think, is unhealthy and it is wrong. The second thing that he says to identify these people, they have received a faith as precious as ours. I have here in my notes, I hesitate to use the superlative, particularly this early in our study of Second Peter, but in some ways, I would argue this may be the most important thing Peter says in this entire letter. It colors everything he says in this letter. Why is that? Well, when I first read this, I was thinking, aha, because remember, none of us comes to a text without certain preconditions. I believe Peter wrote this after First Peter. In First Peter, we read time and time again about things being precious. Chapter 1, verse 18 and 19. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. And then in chapter 2, it shows up three times. As you come to him, the living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious to him. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. And then verse 7, Now to him, or to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And then without using the word precious, he mentions things that are precious. In chapter 1, Into an inheritance that can never perish or spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you. Verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. And then in chapter 1 of Second Peter, where we are, what we will look at next week, the Lord willing, verse number 4, through these he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. So I'm like, yes, there it is, the connection between Second Peter and First Peter. There's only one problem. The word that Peter uses here, this is the only place it is found in the New Testament. It's not the same word that is used elsewhere in First Peter and Second Peter 1.4 for precious. If you'll notice, Peter doesn't say precious. He says, as precious as. The ESV, I think, is very helpful here, of equal standing with ours. And the New American Standard, of the same kind as ours. He's like, what's the big deal? Why the superlative? What, why does this color everything? 
Peter is one of the original followers of Jesus. The people to whom he is writing are not. In fact, in the first letter he wrote, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. What's going on? I would argue that what Peter is addressing here is what I would call a second generation complex. The audience, the people to whom he is writing, is made up of people who are not first generation believers. They were not there. They were not apostles. And they were not Jewish. Thus, there may be a perceived lack of something. You lack something. And this is what opens the door for false teachers and their teachings to come in to say, listen, you guys weren't there at the beginning. You lack something. And Peter says, absolutely not. That what you have received is the same as what I received. It is the same. And for those who might feel insecure, Peter opens his letter by rejecting that premise and holds that they are just as much the recipients of God's grace and his faith than any first generation believer, any apostle, or any Jewish Christian. I think this is key to the book. That false teachers, uh, I'll mention this again later, they come in, if we're not careful, we allow them to come in because they say, you're doing okay, but you lack something. And whether we be second generation, third generation, or just in our Christian life, the spark may seem to not be there. What we felt in the past is no longer there. Something is lacking. And when someone comes along and says, let me tell you what you're lacking, we open the door for false teaching. And Peter will have none of it. Right at the beginning, he makes this clear. They have received this faith that is the same as his. The third thing, through the righteousness of our God and Savior. How is this all possible? How is it that these, these Gentiles who used to be pagans in modern day Turkey, now we're talking about 60 to 65 AD. How is it that they have received the same faith as Peter who walked with Jesus for three years? someone who was commissioned by Jesus to be an apostle. Well, Peter points to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And you might say, wait a minute, that's not what he says. He says, the righteousness of our God and Savior. Just a side note, we'll come to verse 2 in a minute. The language is different from what we find in verse number 2. And I would argue in verse number 2, he's talking about God the Father and about Jesus Christ. But in verse number one, God and Savior refers to Jesus Christ. We find the same formula, by the way, in Paul's writing to Titus. While we wait for the glorious, or for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness in question is that which Jesus Christ has accomplished on our behalf. And therefore, here I am, almost 20 centuries later, and I have the faith, I've received the faith that is just as precious as. It is the same type as what Peter, the apostle, received. 
The third part here is the greeting. Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of our Jesus, our Lord. We've looked at the matter of grace and peace in a number of our studies because we find it so often at the beginning of epistles. I would point out something, and that is, in terms of grace, that fits more within a, a Gentile formula. The word is charis, but actually comes from Greek karen. It sounds, it doesn't come from karen, but charis sounds like karen, which was the greeting. Peace, on the other hand, was very Hebrew, very Jewish, shalom. Now, it's written in Greek, not in Hebrew. But I think in this double greeting of grace and peace, we see the two parts of the church brought together, that which is Gentile and that which is Jewish. Grace points to the generous heart of God who determines to treat sinful men and women as he lovingly wishes rather than as they deserve. And peace means the restoring of all things to the way they were intended to be. Both are to be found among God's people. By the way, in 1 Peter 1-2, we read, Grace and peace be yours in abundance. We find that here as well. But Peter adds something new, which is in keeping with this letter. Through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We will deal with the matter of knowledge as we go through this letter. It comes up time and again. As I mentioned, Peter uses two different words. Gnosis is the word that he uses for information, for knowledge. We find this, for example, in verses 5 and 6 in chapter 1. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness. And he makes clear, I think, that this is a kind of knowledge which we can add to, which we can grow in through, in part, the study of Scripture and through the preaching of the Word. But this is only part of the matter. The second word he uses is epigonosis. This speaks of a personal knowledge. This is a knowledge that goes beyond knowing about something or someone to actually knowing them. This is the word we find here in verse number two, the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. In the next verse, if you look at verse number three, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. This is the essential foundation of the Christian life. What good is it to know about God if, in fact, one does not know God? It's not a matter of intelligence or lack thereof. This is something that God gives, that God, who is higher than us, comes down and we come to learn of him. It is something we have received. The amazing gifts of grace and peace can come only through a personal knowledge of God himself. It's a person-to-person thing. And by the way, when we speak of a personal relationship, we need to be careful what we are speaking of is person-to-person. We don't mean personal as in this is mine and mine alone. It is a personal relationship between us and God. This is how Peter begins his second letter. And in what follows, we will see three main themes. The first, beginning in verse 3 to the end of chapter 1, the nature of the Christian life. Chapter 2, the warning against false teachers. And then chapter 3, the certainty of Christ's return. By the way, I've mentioned this before, but this is just an outline to help us manage our study. 
I mention this because, in fact, verses 1 through 4 are actually one sentence. Uh, Not that way in English translations, but as originally written. So we've sort of cut the sentence in half by putting 1 and 2 as the introduction and verses 3 to 21 as uh, what consists, what makes up the first point of our outline. Verse 3 begins the book proper. And I think it's an amazing way to begin. I've read it before, but let me read it again. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. I mention this, and we will study it next week, because of its connection to the statement in verse number one. You have received a faith as precious as ours or of equal standing with ours, of the same kind as ours. Now Peter tells us that we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. Everything. There will always be people who want to supplement the work of Christ with something extra, either for themselves or in the lives of others, who try to convince others that they are living less than the full Christian life. Their answer always seems to be Christ plus something. Being human, we know that there is something lacking. We don't need someone to tell us that. We don't live as we should. Things that we've experienced in the past, we no longer do. We're just less than what we want to be. This, I think, makes us susceptible to trends that promote something new, something additional to what we have. For Peter's original audience, he's writing to people who are not part of the first generation of followers, who are not apostles, who are not Jewish. And along come false teachers seeking to deceive them by promoting a teaching that says you do not have enough. I mentioned at the beginning that many neglect this book because they they assume that the issues here have nothing to do with us today. We live almost 20 centuries later. Um, but I think it has as much to say to us as it did when it was first written. We live 20 centuries later. We may feel a lack, an absence, and we are intrigued by those who promise us more, who promise us something more real than what we have, who promise to fill the hole that we feel, to return us to a a more pleasant, a wonderful experience of the grace of God. On the back table today, I put out a rather extended quote uh, from uh, Russ Duthout, who writes for the New York Times, a wonderful book called Bad Religion, uh, How We Became a Nation of Heretics. Um, And I, I picked this particular passage because I think it really explains that when you look at the Christian faith, there is, in fact, mystery and paradox. You all will meet my mother, Lord willing, later this year, if you haven't already. But my mom has this really annoying habit that I've chastised her about many times. But she loves Agatha Christie. She loves to read mysteries. But she always reads the last chapter first because she wants to know who did it before she starts reading the story. 
The reality is, there is much we cannot understand. Years after being a Christian, there's still much we do not understand. And the power of heresies, as Dothout points out, is to say, oh, no, 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 there's no mystery. Here, let me explain it to you. Arius came along and said, how can Jesus be God and man? Well, that's simple. He wasn't God. He's just man. There, that's easy. The Gnostics, how can someone who is divine be in a body? Well, they'd say he didn't have a body. And heresy after heresy comes along and says, don't worry about it. Let me explain to you. It's very, very clear. And with that sense of absence, that sense of something missing, and then here comes someone saying, I've got something new. What you have is good, but you need something else. It's Jesus Christ plus something else. And we are as susceptible today to false teaching, perhaps more so, than were our brothers and sisters in the first century. As I mentioned earlier, we should see false teaching as a fire-breathing dragon. But we need to take care lest we back up too far into another fire-breathing dragon behind us. In 1 Peter, the problem comes from outside the church in the form of persecution. And 2 Peter, the problem comes from inside the church in the form of false teachers. What Peter writes in this second letter is of vital importance to us who are God's people, just as it was in the first century. The gospel is Jesus Christ, not Jesus plus something. By God's grace, may we take that to heart. Let's pray together. Father, we are puzzled how you could love us as sinful as we are. And we are frustrated by the fact that we are your children and yet we sin. As Paul said, the things we want to do, we don't do. And the things we don't want to do, we do. We find ourselves lacking something and looking for something to fill that gap. When in fact, Jesus Christ has given us everything we need. As we begin this letter that Peter wrote centuries ago, may your Holy Spirit drive its truths home to our hearts. And may we see that we have been given a faith as real and as precious as what you gave to Peter and the apostles, as what was given to that first generation of believers. And it is as real as when you first gave it to us. Though over the passage of time, over the years, perhaps it seems to have lost its luster, its excitement. And then we look for supplements. May we look to nothing else, no one else, but your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. May your Spirit bring these things to our minds in the coming days. May we meditate on them. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. May your Spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name.
Okay.